What you are about to hear is the ultimate blend of technology and entertainment. This is Conf T with your SE. That's right. This is Conf T with your SE. I'm your host, Brian Young. We've got an exciting and uh, kind of a little scary episode, I think, for to be uh, <laughs> diving into. Uh, definitely uh, a topic that's kind of in the ether, a lot of uh, mystery around it and what it means. Uh, we're actually going to be talking today about quantum computing uh, with none other than Igor, wait, because I did it right this time, Igor Barstein. I was you so worried it. about mispronouncing the last name that I was like, wait, he told me it's not Igor, or it's not Igor, it's Igor. <laughs> yep, it's definitely not Igor. Igor is an eye injury. Well, good to talk Igor, to you, Brian. Thanks. You know, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, this was this was really by happenstance that we happened to kind of run into each other. I think uh, a mutual friend, Chris um, Chris Kimball, who was actually just featured on our um, Tales from the Decrypt episode, uh, uh, <laughs> sharing his scary tales and the reasons why I will never get in the car or on an, in an elevator with him. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, no, that I missed that one, but Chris is a great guy, former colleague of mine. We get along great. He's a great guy, great guy. But yeah, he he mentioned, I think I made some random post on LinkedIn about uh, quantum computing and what it means for passwords and uh, encryption that we have today in general. And uh, he was like, yeah, you, uh, you may want to chime in here, Igor. And then uh, we just kind of hit it off and I'm like, dude, you need to come on the show and say this stuff because this is pretty cool. And uh, I think... We're going to, the goal here is to have a conversation about quantum computing that is easy enough to listen to in the podcast format to make it so that people don't want to just turn the wheel to the right and go off the bridge. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's kick it off. Cool. So, yeah, I think uh, we were talking about your title and I wanted to make sure we hit record before, before I did this, because I think before we jump into that, um, you were you were talking about you know kind of the the things that you do, uh, security architect, and uh, you were saying uh, aspiring CISO, probably not something you want to put in there. Yeah. But I, it reminded me of this article that I just read about the uh, the SEC filing a lawsuit um, against SolarWinds for the 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 mess that you know transpired there, and I I re I read that article, and I'll I'll put a link in the uh, the show notes, but. To me, I look at that and I think this is going to have a rippling effect industry-wide for anyone that's in that CISO seat, right? And I think it's going to change the dynamics of, um, you know, CISOs for hire, right? Where they have, where you have individuals that are like, hey, if you need a CISO, if you need to check that box, like I can be your virtual CISO, and they have a couple customers, or whatever. Um, what are your thoughts on on that? I mean, I think it's it, I think it's just crazy. So there's a couple of uh, opposing dynamics here in play. So one is the uh, the lawsuit, right? And the um, less recent Uber, um, you know, guilty finding for their CISO for what happened there. I think that mm. open that was the first thing that opened everyone's eyes to you know CISOs are actually liable for what happens, personally liable, criminally liable sometimes for what happens at their companies. And uh, the recent lawsuit reinforced that. Um, but I think there's also the other side of this coin is that the new SEC regulations for publicly traded companies actually require publicly traded companies to have a personal and responsible, right, at the, at the named corporate officer level uh, for security, right? So on the one hand, they want, you know, 
all companies that are publicly traded to have somebody. But on the other hand, these recent actions are kind of scaring out everybody who is not really serious and ready to uh, fall on the sword if things go wrong. So I think you're right. It's, it is going to change the dynamic. I think the type of individuals that are attracted to the seesaw role is going to change. Um, yeah. And I think um, a lot of the negotiations when somebody is about to become a CISO and they're considering a position are going to be much more serious in tone. Like, what is my exit plan? What is my golden parachute in case things mm -hmm. go wrong, right? Uh, am I being, you know, a lot a lot of the candidates are going to look more closely at, am I being hired to improve uh, the state of affairs and security today? Or am I being hired to, you know, kind of be the bag holder because the board or management knows that things are wrong, right? And they just need someone to take the fall. So yeah. there's a lot of considerations that are going to be coming into play here that really weren't as, you know, front of mind for people before. Right. And I think, I think that's going to definitely make the, uh, the interviewing process, uh, much more interesting. I think there's going to be a lot more questions coming from the candidate side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, right now in senior security leadership, the interview process is already like five to seven interviews. So this is right. just going to make it more, more onerous and, and difficult. But you know, um, I think if you want to take the responsibility and you, you want to own that potential liability, I think, you know, the, the labor supply for CISOs is going to shrink, right? Because not many mm -hmm. want to take on that risk. And consequently, supply and demand compensation will also increase. So if yeah. you want to take that risk and bite the bullet, then probably uh, get better compensated as well. I think it's time for me to dust off my uh, CISSP training uh training stuff so yeah no i think i think that those are all valid points and as you said it's there's two opposing dynamics in terms of the the regulations that that are exist want there to be someone there to you know be the 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 the, the, the stopgap there to be that final um approval and, and and just build it but at the same time they're also the same people that are going to absolutely ring, put that person through the ringer when stuff happens and sometimes stuff is out of, out of your control. And you can have a CISO that does everything right and just something happened that was beyond the control and all the boxes were checked and all the I's uh, were dotted and T's were crossed, but that doesn't mean, and, and even, if that, even if that CISO is not found to be criminally or uh, personally liable, they're going to have to go through a very long, you know, legal process to 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 clear their name to to prove that case, um, and that's that's gonna that's gonna take a huge toll on them personally and professionally. So, yeah, definitely uh, definitely a lot to consider. Um, yep. But I think in a way, there's definitely some kind of um, linkage between our topic around quantum computing and. The role of a CISO, because I think the the t the post that I had made was talking specifically about what does quantum computing mean when it comes to passwords. If uh, if quantum computing exists and you know it can be a one or zero or as you said anything in between, um, is anything even safe anymore? And um, you know I think I think you gave a a, a great um, ex explanation to me. 
uh, when we first started talking. And I'd, I'd love to hear it again. And I'd love our listeners to hear that in terms of what does that mean when qu- uh, quantum computing comes in? What does that mean for our passwords? Sure. Uh, so it's it's not as much about passwords, but about uh, the encryption that we use today to secure all of our you know, business transactions, you, you know, website browsing, you know, any financial stuff you do online, like even purchasing stuff from a shopping cart, right? So your common garden variety TLS, right? Uh, when you see HTTPS and the little lock icon uh, next to your uh, website name there, that is uh, a hybrid uh, encryption protocol. So what it does mm-hmm. is it, uh, there's a high, there's an asymmetric encryption part. Um, so in the beginning, when the uh, your computer is trying to reach out to the server, right? They need to establish a shared encryption key that they both know, without revealing it over the wire. And there are right. protocols uh, to do this uh, called asymmetric encryption, which rely on the difficulty of factoring large, very large numbers, right? And um, there's a. There's, I'm not going to get into the details, but basically, without sending the shared secret over the wire, both computers are able to derive it. Right, and only have to send a public uh, key to each other. Um, So uh, once that secret is established, right, then symmetric encryption takes over, like your AES two fifty six, and then you know the traffic is secure for the duration of the session. Quantum computers uh, are able to very rapidly factor those large numbers. So the session negotiation, the the key establishment part, where both computers derive a shared key, uh, is essentially broken. And the threat is not only in the future, but it actually exists today. Because somebody today could capture your traffic over the network, even though it's encrypted, record it, say, on a hard drive, throw that hard drive in a desk drawer for 10 years or however long it takes for a, a quantum computer to be a reality, then pop that hard drive out of the desk drawer and, you know, uh, you replay the traffic, feed feed the session negotiations stuff through the quantum computer, and voila, they have your symmetric encryption key. They decrypt the tra- the entire traffic flow, and all that private information that was secured today will be decrypted tomorrow. And that's a threat that's already here. And by implication, like we need to have post-quantum or quantum-safe cryptography in place like yesterday. Mm. Yeah. And, and is this is this specifically to data in transit that we you know because you made you made that that uh kind of um scenario there but what about like data at rest i'm thinking like a breach of uh um an organization now most likely you know they i I, it always kind of made me scratch my head about why encrypted drives were such a big thing why it was such an importance like you know uh, uh, encrypted solid state drives but I guess if you're worried about someone having physical access and just literally yanking the drives out and then just not being able to see what's on them. Um, but if, if, if I, if I'm breached, most likely I'm going to be able to see the raw data. I'm not going to just see the encrypted stuff. I'm going to be able to go through the operating system, or whatever to, to grab that. But in the event that I do get encrypted data, hash data, um, you know, like, uh, salted passwords or whatever, writing encrypted financial data that's in its, its encrypted form. Um, is this the same kind of concept where you could just hold on to it for 10 years, 15 years, whenever quantum computing is a thing and go after it and, and then have access to it? No. Uh, so for data at rest and hashing also, 
uh, the algorithms that are run by quantum computers that speed up factoring. It's called Shor's algorithm. It does mm-hmm. not actually appreciably speed up uh, the decryption of those symmetric uh, algorithms like AS256, like all of your hashes. That's actually not under threat. Um, so okay. the threat is specifically to public key cryptography or asymmetric cryptography. So we're talking about session negotiation, key establishment there. We're talking about trusting digital certificates and digital signatures. So these are these are all things that are under threat. But when it comes to data at rest, just bulk encrypted data, hash data, not an issue. But if somebody, if you want to be able to prove authenticity of data that's signed, right, or, um, you know, non-repudiation, that somebody, you know, made a change in the data and you want to make sure that it's truly made by them and by no one else, you know, you're relying on their public key, um, that that is also under threat. So anything that has gotcha. to do with public-private key cryptography there. I got you. That, that makes sense. So so in terms of like the data at rest or whatever, if, I, if I've got just a bunch of stuff, I, it's quantum computing is not really going to give you a level up versus what we can do today with brute force. Yeah. Right. It's just it's just going to chug through it. And uh, and and there's modern infrastructure out there today that uses uh, clustered machines and everything else to just really kind of go through and, and get through that brute forcing faster. But there's no like magic switch like what we're talking about with the asymmetric and the session negotiation and, and all that. So um, so let me ask you this <clears throat> right now. You're you know, what we're saying is. I can if I record that session if I'm in the middle and I'm able to record that session and save it 10 years I can I can break it. Where are we at today because I know there are some organizations out there um that that have some you know type of quantum computing that they that they advertise um where are we today in terms of being able to do that now. So uh great question. So today uh the state of the art um quantum processor is IBM's Osprey uh, CPU, and Mm -hmm. that fields 433 qubits altogether that can, you know, work together as as one to, you know, break potentially uh, quantum, so sorry, can we we redo that in the recording? To, uh, to, you know, that pose potentially a threat to um, asymmetric encryption. However, 433 qubits is not enough, okay? Um, The quantum computing, uh, by its very nature, is noisy and kind of messy. So the way the speed-up works, like a classical computer, when you're trying to factor a large number, you have to go through the algorithm step-by-step of finding the greatest common divider, divisor and you know figuring out what the factors are and trying different possibilities. And that's why it takes a very, very long time because you have to go through each possibility in sequence, check it, and if it doesn't work, then try another one. With quantum computers, the qubits can be anything between 0 and 1, and also another amazing property is that when you have a bunch of them together, they all, their states and their values all kind of overlap together and interfere together, and you can read them all out at the same time. I'm not going to get into, again, the technical detail, but the way that this speeds up the factoring is that you're able to look at all the possible solutions kind of at the same time and see which ones um, light up because they're, they're, they interfere together and kind of come out of that sea of possibilities. And that's where the speed up occurs, right? So um, 
433 is not enough. You need to actually have way more qubits in play than the cryptographic strength of, of their security bits of the encryption, right? So, um, for example, a uh, RSA 2048, right? It has um, 2048 um, bit strength, um, but mm -hmm. you need way more than that, um, like uh, several times that to actually be able to break that um, because you need to have some qubits available for error correction because everything is noisy and kind of vibrating in the quantum ether and to get a readout that you know is actually reliable and correct you need to overlap your result many times with more qubits than you need so um, a cryptographically relevant quantum computer the current estimate is that it's going to require about 4,000 to 10,000 qubits on a single CPU or maybe on a network set of CPUs that are entangled together to actually be able to break uh, current classical asymmetric encryption. We're not there yet. So IBM's right. roadmap says this year they're going to come out with their Condor chip, which is going to be like 1,121 uh, qubits. It's getting close. But yeah. they're not. They're saying they're not going to get to like 4,000 plus until 2025 and later. So we got a little okay. bit of time, um, but again, we're not safe from the uh, capture now and decrypt later threat. Right, right. D is and this may be too early to tell, but is quantum computing following kind of the uh, the Moore's law in terms of trajectory, like? If we're looking at number of, because you, know, you mentioned 1,100, I'm like, that's about three times what we're looking at here today. I don't know when this one came out, but uh, you know, are we looking at kind of doubling um, in every, every two years or, or something like that? It, it does seem to be like an exponential scale, right, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the progress we're seeing. We're seeing shorter and shorter increments to bigger and bigger uh, numbers of qubits. So it seems like Moore's Law. I don't know if it's going to be the exact same parameter in that curve uh, as right, Moore's right. Law is, but um, we're going to get there sooner than later, and that's that's troublesome. Yeah. Whew, boy. And I don't, I'm sure that the, uh, you know, the, the advances in, in AI and machine learning and stuff are just going to only help progress that along in terms of just being able to find a better way to build that mousetrap. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. you, know, you should do this and do that. Absolutely. That's, that's crazy. So, and it's funny too, because I always felt like, you know, asymmetric, um, asymmetric encryption, especially on networking, uh, communications was always like, you know, Hey, this is, this is the most secure way to do it. But it's a huge tax on the CPU. Um, and that's why, as, as you very eloquently explained, when you go to a website and you initially connect to a website and you get into that HTTPS, it is a hybrid. The initial key exchange is done asymmetrically so that no one listening on the wire can see, oh, yeah, here's, here's the key you want to use. Go ahead and use that. Um, but it's funny that that's going to be the thing that breaks. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's going to be that that breaks first just because of the the nature of how of how we did it in terms of of factorization. Um is there in 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 the theories or kind of in the the uh the the, the minds that that are thinking about these things are there other ways other than factoring that have been considered for I mean, at the end of the day, we're still going to need to have some type of 
key exchange, a secure way to exchange those uh, symmetric keys. Um, what's what's what are they thinking about? What are they doing? So this has been known for some time. It's it's been on people's radar for like ten years already, right? It's probably coming. I'm a to, little late to the party. It's been, it's come to public <laughs> consciousness, and like people have really started talking about it in the last few years. But right. back in 2016, the National Institute of Science and Technology launched their post quantum cryptography competition, because even back then they were already aware that you know this this day is going to come. We don't know when. But it's definitely coming because, you know, advancements in quantum computing were just getting faster and faster, even at that time. And they said, let's let's open a competition similar to what they did with AES in the late 90s, right? Let's, let's have people submit um, algorithms that are based on math, which does not rely on the difficulty of factoring, uh, you know, large numbers or related problem elliptic curves, which are also vulnerable to the same algorithm because they can be reduced to factoring large numbers essentially so the competition went on from 2016 they did like three rounds they're in round four right now but after round three they announced last summer uh, the kind of finalist algorithms that they were gonna standardize so they announced dilithium for digital signatures uh, kyber for key exchange those are all you know asymmetric uh, functions and another one called a sphinx plus which is Kind of a another digital signature uh, algorithm. So um, since then, um, there's been draft standards published just this August by NIST, um, and they've changed the names now. They don't call them dilithium and kyber. They call the you know they have new government names for them. But essentially, <laughs> essentially, dilithium, kyber, and Sphinx Plus have been republished as FIPS, Federal Information Processing Standards. Um, and I think it's FIPS 203, 204, and 205. Um, and they're dra in draft form right now. They're actually in the public comment period. And okay. that period ends at the end of this month, at November. I forget. It's around Thanksgiving at some point. Um, so this work has already been underway. A lot mm. of work has been done, not only in the standardization body in government, but also uh, in industry as well. And we can, we can dive into that. And also, NIST is not the only game in town that's doing this worldwide okay i was i was gonna ask because you know not that i'm going around wearing a you know a tinfoil hat but i always like to see what are the what are the like i get a little nervous when i'm here and like okay you know nist is doing this and we're, we're the government's involved kind of like they want to do this like just making sure there's no you know other ways back doors whatever right um so it it sounds it sounds to me like they're going about it the right way. I'm always a fan of, you know, kind of the hey, let's open this up, let's make this a competition, let's have everyone poke at this to see if they can kind of figure out what's what's up and 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 figure out a way to break it. And it's why I think things like, um, you know, this and 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 TLS and these open standards have been much more successful than say, and I'm going to pick on uh you know people here, but. Like the Wi-Fi alliance, right? Where everything's, you know, very, very close knit and it's like nothing is, you know, we, we could be leaps and bounds ahead of, of where we are now on, on, on Wi-Fi, especially in things like roaming and stuff like that than we are today. But I digress. That's a conversation for another day. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to dive into, into that in terms of who else is, is, um, you know, involved outside of NIST and, you know, our, our government, other countries, et cetera. And also, you know, what? How are these uh, organizations like taking this on and testing it? Are there any 
organizations out there that are, you know, kind of testing the waters, trying this out, stuff like that? Yeah, um, I think in the 90s, in 99, NIST did a great job with how they did the competition for AES, right? Rhinedale, which is the, the, the symmetric cipher that became AES, um, was actually one of three uh, finalists, right? And it was, again, the process was very open. It was selected because it was a compromise on speed and security, right? There's actually another cipher called Serpent, which was way more secure, but way slower, and they couldn't reproduce it in hardware as well as Rhinedale. Mm. But uh, NIST had a great process. Uh, it was like a hallmark of transparency, and their reputation as a, as a cryptography standards body really went up. It was kind of in the dumps at that point, because at that point, the NSA was known to have had its hands in the design of uh, DES, uh, the DES, Data Encryption Standard, mm-hmm. and um, they they really needed to kind of revamp their reputation. So they did an open competition. It worked great. Then, in the 2000s, we had the dual EC DRBG standard, which was um, a backdoor was revealed in one of the uh, elliptic curve-based random number generators that NIST was pushing hard to be standardized and actually published as a standard. And there were allegations of NSA involvement, and reputation kind of went back down. Um, And in this new uh, post-quantum cryptography competition, again, the process was open, but now, um, again, slightly tinfoil hat land, but allegations have emerged from prominent cryptographers like Daniel J. Bernstein that the process was not entirely as open as claimed, and that you know mm-hmm. there were a lot of communications on the on kind of backside communications with the NSA about what's getting selected and what's getting standardized and and when. So um, not sure if there is anything to that. There's an open uh, uh, FOIA request that's been stalled. Um, by NIST and is, mm. Bernstein's currently suing them. Uh, I don't think that'll go anywhere. <laughs> but uh, you know, cryptography work is not without you know cloak and dagger type allegations always. Um, yeah. As yeah. a general comment for commercial cryptography that's you know open to the public, military ciphers are always classified, and we don't know anything about them. But you know, it would I would be disappointed in any national standards agency. Uh, that's standardizing commercial cryptography standards if they were not working with their national intelligence agency. I think all countries do this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's just standard practice and we shouldn't be surprised. If you're concerned and if you have something to hide from the government where this is a, in your threat model, you can always choose another government you know, set of commercial <laughs> cipher suites and uh, go that way. I mean, they're all open standards, these commercial ones. Yeah. Uh, But going into a little bit about what's going on worldwide, right? Um, NIST was the first game in town, kind of. They kicked off in 2016, but, you know, they weren't the only ones. Uh, Soon after that, China noticed, and China kicked off its competition in 2018, and they actually completed their competition faster than NIST. So they started in 2018. They had an open process. They basically cloned the NIST process, and they announced their finalists in January 2020, which was like almost two years before NIST did. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, uh, you know, I don't read Chinese natively, so it's hard for me to follow, but um, they have not yet published a draft standard. I think they're waiting for NIST to finish theirs maybe before they publish their own. Um, but they have finalist algorithms already picked out. Another major player in this field is Russia. Um, and they started in 2019, 
but their process is not open. It's very closed, um, very opaque. It's hard to find uh, where they are, what stage they're in. I'm he I hear there are draft standards out there somewhere, but they're not publicly available. And that's mm. where I'll leave that. Yeah, yeah. For the for the for the sake of the show, we'll just leave everything right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely. It's, I'm glad to know that this has been something that's on a lot of radars, um, because at the end of the day, even if you don't have anything to necessarily hide, there is they the you know right to privacy, right? The right to be able to not have everything snooped on by anyone right now i'm not i'm not picking on the, the the government or the nsa or anything just like i don't necessarily want my neighbor to know you know what what i need to go to the pharmacy for right i, I don't i don't want them to know that um and that's kind of the mentality you have to have and it's always something that it, it's one of those conversations where you'll get into someone where like well i have nothing to hide i have nothing to be worried about and it's like it's not about something to hide. At the end of the day, you do, and you do have things you want to hide. You don't want me knowing your bank pin. You don't want me knowing your credit card number. You, you, just because you don't think you have anything to hide because you're, you're a good person does not mean that you don't have things that you want to keep private. And that's that's kind of the key part that people don't, you know, they forget about because they always think, oh, well, if you're hiding something, it must be bad. No? Uh, as someone who works professionally in data privacy, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm actually a privacy advocate. Uh, I went yeah. to I went to Brandeis University, and uh, that's named after Chief Justice Louis Brandeis, who actually wrote um, probably the first uh, legal argument codifying essentially the right to privacy, which is not in the Constitution spelled out um, right. that you know we all have the right to be left alone, right? And I mm -hmm. strongly believe in that, and I feel that these days um, we're very very willing to just give it up for convenience so oh, like yes. nobody nobody reads the privacy policies nope. people just click okay and then they sign their life yep. away and then they really have no recourse even under the privacy legislation that's coming up but that's another discussion for another day let's stick to quantum for today <laughs> <laughs> we, we we could have many episodes like this this is awesome um all right so with all this being with all right, with all this being said, we've got some FIPS. I think you said two hundred three, two hundred four, two hundred five. We're in draft form now. Um, what are some of the you know what are organizations or uh, businesses doing now to kind of test these waters? I would imagine organizations like Google and Amazon, especially, are looking at this stuff and kind of seeing where they can they can put this in and and how it works and. What they can, how they can make it into a business model. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, let's start with government first, instead of okay. private sector. So, for government uh, and for organizations like the military and uh, organizations that are government contractors, uh, the NSA has actually released the Commercial National Security Algorithm Suite version 2.0 uh, in the summer. And uh, what that specifies is it mandates that all of these government entities transition to post-quantum cryptography by specific times, right? And, it, you know, these times are interesting in terms of what the NSA sees. You know, they're charged with protecting, you know, our commercial and, you know, government interests from foreign interference and, you know, right. spying. What the NSA sees is a threat. So uh, the way that the ti that timelines are for NSA is they want to have across the board testing 
in government uh, solutions from 2024 onwards. They want to have web services to support post-quantum cryptography by 2025 and have it set as default. Network oh, wow. equipment should be uh, ready by 2026 to have that as a default capability. And operating systems, 2027. So it's kind of a phased approach, but right. you know that kind of that kind of jives with the you know the the roadmap for quantum computing capability, right? Around 2025 yeah. is where we'll get around 4,000 plus qubits, and that's when things kind of get really dicey. So they're mandating that for government. So government entities are already working hard on the transition. I'm sure there's a lot of people reading those draft standards, trying to figure out how to adapt. Now coming to the private sector. Um, there's an open source kind of uh, collaborative effort in industry uh, called Open Quantum Safe. Um, shameless plug because I've worked with them before on some prototyping work um, with TLS 1.3, uh, post quantum algorithms, and with qu the Quick protocol, which is uh, uh, kind of the next version of uh, TCP uh, mm -hmm. and post quantum stuff there. But anyway, uh, Open Quantum Safe has been uh, designing. Um, uh, a library called LibOQS, uh, which which offers all of these post-quantum algorithms as callable functions for other software. And that's kind of the base library. Right now it's at release 0.9 today. And already, based on that library, ports exist of things like OpenSSL. There's an OpenSSL post-quantum provider for OpenSSL version 3.x that you can plug into your OpenSSL and start using these post-quantum algorithms. There's also a port of OpenSSH. I think the current version that's ported is 8.9, Portable 1. Um, that's already out there as well. And um, these uh, ports offer the current NIST-approved right, um, uh, algorithms, Dilithium, Kyber, and Sphinx Plus. So you can already start experimenting today. They wow. haven't really implemented the NIST standardized versions yet. I think that's coming up in the, in the next release in the next few months because the standardized versions have slightly different parameters. Again, nobody knows why. Tinfoil hat land, but same algorithm, slightly different parameter set, and those will be standardized um, um, probably in LibOQS very soon in the next couple of months. So that's one set of efforts that's going on. Um, there's other software that supports uh, integration with LibOQS. StrongSwan for IPsec, uh, version 6 beta 4, uh, which is the current one you can download from um, from their site. It's a beta, but it has full support for open quantum safe algorithms. WolfSSL, in the latest version, supports it as well. Um, now, a quick note here. Um, there's a difference between the way that government wants to do post-quantum cryptography and industry. Government uh, like the NSA uh, specification, uh, requires that we switch from current classical uh, asymmetric cryptography to straight quantum, post-quantum cryptography. So we're just going to be using Dilithium for uh, digital signatures and Kyber for key exchange or whatever else NIST approves in the future. Uh, okay. Industry, uh, and I think rightfully so, is concerned that we don't actually know how secure these post-quantum algorithms are yet because they're very right. new and right. industry is opting for a hybrid approach where the approach is let's take a approved or you know a NIST candidate algorithm and let's layer it together with a known today's secure algorithm like for example 
Cloudflare already runs post-quantum cryptography on uh, their connections to origin servers, right? But they use a combination of uh, X25519 uh, and Kyber, which is the post-quantum one. Uh, Chrome, as of August this year, supports the same algorithm set, and it's hybrid. ExpressVPN, just in October, launched a new version of their lightweight protocol uh, for their VPN connections for their clients, and that supports, again, a hybrid combination of NIST's P256 curve plus Kyber Level 1, or for stronger security level, P521 curve and Kyber Level 5. Google, in August, just released a spec uh, for their open source FIDO2 token that uses a combination of elliptic curves, uh, current you know asymmetric cryptography, and dilithium digital signature post-quantum. So industry is going we're not sure about this yet. Let's 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 layer it together with known good cryptography because right. we don't know if stuff's going to get broken. And government's saying just go straight with what NIST, NIST specifies and transition. And the reason why industry is concerned is because during the NIST competition, uh, a couple of the really promising candidates were, sh you know, everything was going well. We got to round three or even round four, and things were broken really bad. Rainbow. Mm a round three finalist signature algorithm uh, was shown to be broken on a laptop over a weekend in February 2022, and it was already in round three. In July of 2022, a key encapsulation algorithm called Psyche, S-I-K-E, it was about to move to round four, and it was just about to be announced as one of the candidates for standardization last summer, and it was broken really dramatically as well. So... You know, we have an open competition. We have cryptographers, you know, experimenting with these things, trying to break them. But again, these things are new. And industry, I think, is right to say, mm, let's layer it together in a hybrid mode with what we know works, right? It's interesting yeah. that the NSA says, forget elliptic curves, uh, which is the current kind of asymmetric standard for speed and portability. And let's just go straight to post-quantum. And there's been some speculation again, back in tinfoil hat land, that the NSA has found some kind of vulnerability in elliptic curves, and that's why they're just dumping that all together. Another topic for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I've, I, I think I've heard that, and um, and it's it's tough because this, this kind of goes back with the whole... Um, it's, it's a difference of like... Uh, I don't even know how to say this. It's competing... It's competing ideas and competing um, desires, right? Because let's face it, the NSA has been known to, you know, do some spying and it wants to be able to easily or, you know, easierly, if that's a word, um, get into encrypted data streams. So they're going to be looking at, hey, the, or the idea is, is that they're going to have the idea of, uh, wanting to be able to have that backdoor get in a little bit easier rather than spend tons and tons of cycles trying to brute force it right so they're they're going to be looking for that but they also it's also part of an entity that wants us to be safe and wants our data to be safe and yeah it's 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 definitely a little bit of conflict of interest or at least it seems so and considering the history of NIST and the NSA and stuff like that, it's it's going to get people to kind of scratch their heads and pay a little bit more attention and say, well, 
who's in who's who's best interest you have in mind here um, to touch on your point a little bit there about attacks against encryption i'll tell you this that most nation states at least until quantum computers are going to be a thing uh do not try to attack encryption directly it's a waste mm. of time it's incredibly expensive and right. you know the math as it stands today is sound what's most commonly attacked is the implement either the implementation so you have side channel attacks like timing attacks or power analysis attacks on the chips that are doing the encryption, uh, you know, doing electromagnetic em emanations from the chips doing the encryption to figure out what the operations are. Uh, so that's one way of attacking. And then the most common way of attacking is actually just attack the endpoints of the secured communication channel. So if you compromise the sending machine or the receiving machine, you right. know, before anything gets encrypted or after it gets decrypted, there you got your information there. And that's how most things screen are done capture. today. Yeah. Yep. Screen yeah. capture is, is, you know, get get something on there that's taking screenshots every, you know, a couple seconds or whatever and sending it. And you don't have to worry about cracking anything. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and that's actually the route that most uh, intelligence agencies take these days. Right. And even corporate espionage works the same way. You compromise the, the systems and you don't worry about the math. Yep. Now there's there's always I always find it hilarious how there there'll there'll be some proof of concept that was discussed. Like uh, I remember this one article I read about um, they were trying to figure out a way to get data off of a of a PC that was air gapped, and they were doing it by making the hard drive activity light blink at a certain rate that to the eye didn't you know didn't it was fine, but. And they calculated the transfer rate of like, you know, 20 bits a second or something like that. But they're like, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of those. I, I've read other papers where, you know, you use uh, speaker tones that are inaudible to the human ear, you know, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. fan rotation speeds, right? Vary, vary the fan rotation speed subtly. There's a lot of those. I'll tell you this, um, you know, the whole Stuxnet situation with Iran when... when mm. um, nation-state actors who shall remain nameless, right, compromised Iran's uh, nuclear enrichment facility. That was all air-gapped. Somehow, Stuxnet was able to be put onto that air-gapped system somehow. Maybe a USB, maybe somebody didn't have their USB port control uh, set up correctly. I'm not sure what's going on there, but they did yeah. breach the air-gap, so it's been known to be done before. Yep. Yeah, it it can happen. I did not realize that that was completely air gapped. I had actually seen a recent thing on, I think it was Netflix about that. And I did not know that that was uh, that was air gapped. That's interesting. Makes it very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious. When were the last? When was the last time that we really were at this type of an inflection point? I mean, I'm I'm trying to think back to, and I and I don't, I don't think it goes back to like you know, oh. Uh, TLS 1.3 versus 1.2. Like it, it, this is much bigger than this. This is a, a complete rework and basically building up from the ground of you know what we need to do to keep our data private and secure. When were we here last? Like how far back do we have to go? I can't find a good uh, analogy in the security land, right? But mm -hmm. what I can tell you is that this is similar to Y2K. Okay. At, you know, with the level of crisis we're facing here. Uh, if you take TLS 1.3 as an example, a lot of places are still not using TLS 1.3. Even right. even that, you know, that standard's been around since, what, 2016? 
roughly, mm-hmm. and we're st- we're still transitioning, right? Yep. And the the threat is much much less, right? With not transitioning to TLS 1.3 from 1.2, for example. Here we're talking about the threat is here. It's 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 now, right? It's, people can be capturing uh, your traffic today and storing it. And okay, back to tinfoil hat land. A lot of nation state intelligence agencies are building very large data centers capable of capturing storing vast amounts of traffic you know they're probably doing it already and just waiting for that quantum computer to show up so the <laughs> threats have here, a spot carved out for it <laughs> yeah so so uh you know it's it's already here um the urgency is here the government's mandating transition by 2025 we've got two years draft standards are going to come out from nist for you know private sector um, you know, in the spring, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have a giant crisis of companies trying to adapt to these standards uh, and, you know, vendors um, coming out with products that support this encryption, right? Now, a lot of a lot of big players are ahead of the game, right? Amazon, Cloudflare, right. Google, right? They're already working on this. OQOS is already working on this. So we got a lot of players that are already adapting. And in fact, NIST made a recommendation to the private sector that this is why they announced their candidate algorithms that they were gonna standardize last summer to give people a chance to really start prototyping the solutions. The goal is when they publish the standards, very shortly after that you're gonna see a flood of products hit the market to support these new algorithms. And that's great, but you also need people that understand this technology, that have worked with this technology before right, that have experimented with it, that know where the threat model is, right, that it's right. against, you know, session negotiation and data at rest, or trust via public key infrastructure and not really data at rest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be a, a, a cybersecurity jobs crisis again uh, with, with, with this technology <laughs> emerging uh, for qualified specialists in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Side note, cybersecurity jobs crisis is over, I think, just judging the market dynamics that i'm seeing today (laughs) you know you 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 gave kind of the um the analogy of it's not like going from tls 1.2 to 1.3 i would say it sounds like it's going from no encryption to tls 1.3 like it's 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 a big jump Mm -hmm. and the reason that one point the implementation of 1.3 has been so slow to roll out um i think a lot of that has to do with well a lot, a lot of smaller, you know, applications. Obviously, all the, all the big players are using it, but there, it obviously there's there's tons of smaller ones that are. Maybe it's abandoned. Maybe it's not really well maintained. Maybe it's just like I really don't care. And the issue too is on the on the browser side, and this is where a lot of the attacks happen. Is that we it, in order to be compatible, the browser will support TLS one point zero point one, and that that creates a vulnerability there where if you're going to a compromised website, I can I can make it so that that website says, hey, I only do this. We need to we, we need to be able to talk at this level. And the browser's like, okay. And it has, you know, it's like I you know, we just want to make it work, right? I have a feeling that what's going to be uh probably the most difficult part of this whole thing is going to be that transition and how abruptly things get shut off if if they get shut off at all right I, because it sounds like 
NIST is is really pushing to say, listen, you need to push to this, and we need to be able to to close all these doors behind us because if we don't, what was the point? Yep, correct. I think uh, with this new new standard emerging, like I said, I think twenty twenty four after spring comes, it's going to be a mad rush to get this done. And as you pointed out, the session parameters are really set on the server, right, and on the client. And they have to find right. a common language that they talk. They have to negotiate. So exactly. the browsers will have to have support for kind of the NIST standardized algorithms, right? And then has to ship a standard on the browser. And that's fine. But then on the other side, you have to configure your Apache or Nginx or whatever to, you know, support just those, just the new right. post-quantum uh, algorithms. And that will, be, that will be a tough sell for companies unless they're confident that their user base has upgraded to the latest versions of the browsers. So I think there will be a, a kind of a multi, multi-angle multi push, right? The mm-hmm. browser manufacturers will really push out these browser updates, right? Uh, Chrome, um, Safari, right? The support will be there, and that update will really be forced on the user. It will be something that will be really hard to opt out of, from the other end, It'd be like get it when we get rid of Flash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then from the other end, you know, the major web server implementations, Apache, Nginx, IIS, right? They'll they'll implement support on their side, and then we're going to get to a point where, you know, you go to the Mozilla, you know, web server config, SSL configuration wizard on the internet, and they're not going to have the modern or medium security or legacy options anymore. It's just going to be one option, and that's going to be post-quantum, and that's the parameters you got to put in your server to make it secure. So I think there's going to be a sea change there. It's going to be a lot yeah. of a lot of activity, I think, uh, starting next spring. Sounds like we're going to be busy. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the industry is going to be busy. Um, let me ask you this question: What would you do differently? in terms of, you know, any, any part of this research, implementation, draft, whatever, if, you know, if everyone pointed at you and said, Hey, well, how do we do this? What, what would you do differently or how would you, what recommendations would you make, uh, across, across the board? So I think, you know, I, I work in security leadership right now for, for a medium global manufacturing business. We have quite a lot of encrypted connections and data in transit. So one of the things that we're already thinking about is we need to inventory all of our data and transit encrypted connections, right? Understand where are the endpoints, right? What are the encryption protocols? What are you using? Is it SSH? Is it TLS? Is it SFTP, right? What is what is the encryption method that's running? Uh, and then research the software that's running that important protocol what is the update timeline for that software? Have they even considered, you know, um, conforming to the new NIST standards? Is there even prototype software out, right? OpenSSH, sure, right? OpenSSL, sure, already exists. So you can start experimenting with hybrid versions today. But then there are some uh, lesser known encrypted protocols, like how are we going to secure LDAP-S or, you know, how are we going to do SMIME for email, right? Is that just going to be, you know, are we going to encapsulate it in post-quantum TLS? Like, what are we going to do, right? So take an inventory of all of your data in transit encryption, right? Make a list, list the protocols, try to, like, make a list of the software 
runs those protocols and then start investigating where are those software providers at in terms of their roadmap, right? I think that's what I would recommend first and foremost. Data at rest, hashes, not as bit of, big of a concern right now, um, right. but definitely everything that's moving that you're encrypting internally and externally. Also, I would take a long look if you have these in-house, in if you have a certificate authority, you need to start thinking about how is your certificate authority going to support hybrid post-quantum digital signatures, right? And uh, you, you got to look at your CA software, right? If it's Microsoft, if it's the EJBDC or whatever that one's called that runs in Java, you need to look at what's the roadmap there as well. Yeah. And I think I think it's a very good point because what the alternative is that you don't look, you get surprised, and there's a problem. Either you find out the really hard way that there's a problem, and you're you become a victim, or you're up against some deadline, right? I mean, I know I know NIST has a lot of um, a lot of regulations and and um, um, things of compliance that they push on any organization that wants to do business with the, the federal government in any capacity, right? So if you're running up against something like that where you're not matching the, the, the NIST framework and then you have to go and be like, oh, my ERP system does not support this and it's SaaS-based and I, I absolutely communicate with it through encrypted means, but these aren't supported, Um I need to reach out to them and they're like, well, you know, we, it, we're, we're two guys in a basement. We don't really do this anymore. Like, you know, we don't really, really care. Well, now you got to find a new system. Now you got to migrate off of that. Right. And that takes time. That takes a lot of planning. And if you're rushing to do it, man, there are mistakes to be made. So I think that's a, that's a very good, uh, we'll call that our, our PSA right there. Uh, you need to absolutely look at the vendors you are using the protocols that you are using today uh, with your encrypted traffic, both internally and externally. Um, and most people don't look at the internal stuff, but hey, zero trust, right? That's exactly. It, you absolutely need to look at the inside stuff too. And don't you forget the CAs, the, the certificate and authorities. Especially the CAs. Yeah. Especially the CAs. Because that's the root of trust. Inventory. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. Well, I, I'm... I feel better now because I feel like it's not all doom and gloom. We're not going to all of our secrets are not going to be exposed in two or three years uh, when when they flip the switch on some you know four thousand uh, or, or or greater qubit quantum computing processor. But there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still people. There are people doing a lot of that work now already that have been kind of aware of this for a while. And I do I do like the. Um, <laughs> the connection to the Y2K bug, but I have to ask because I was way too young to really notice or care, but was, was the Y2K bug actually really that bad or was it really just a bunch of hype? Like was, was it really that bad? It wasn't as bad as people made it out to be in the hype right. sphere, right? Uh, it was a great jobs creator for it, right? <laughs> uh, and for, for developers at the time, there right. were some very significant mainframe type systems that were going to break, that ran a lot okay. of critical infrastructure um, that, you know, would have been a disaster if they did break, but it would have been, wouldn't have been the end of the world, right? It would have been bad, um, but they probably could have gotten in and, and patched that stuff, you know, within the next, within the next few days, right? So um, 
I think the, the hype level is, is probably not as large as Y2K, but what's worrying is that the potential damage here is larger. And what's even to me, it should be. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I'm like, oh, you know, no one, everyone knows about Y two K, but you know, it was like three computers that would have been possibly affected by it that needed to be fixed, and everyone just freaked out for it and spent spent a ton of money, and you know, no big deal. It, it was kind of like the the, and it's like, is this the boy that cried wolf? Right? Are they looking back at this and being like, oh, this quantum computing thing, this is like Y two K, right? We didn't, we spent a ton of money fixing it, and it was it, it was not even a problem. Nothing happened. Not a single plane fell out of the sky. <laughs> so I think like, here the problem is even if we do our best and yeah. you know implement the quantum computing and everybody transitions, we've already had about ten years of data captured, right? That's, That's going to be decryptable. Don't know who's doing it. Again, it's speculation, but I'm sure certain governments are already doing it. Oh man, just got to bite yep. that bullet and move on. Not sure what kind of economic damage that will cause either. Uh, it depends on who has access to that data, to those massive troves of captured traffic. And that's where, that's kind of where the threat comes, right? It's not about who has the quantum computer today, but it's like who right. has the big data center that can capture all that traffic and store it today. And that's who you got to worry about. Mm, that's a good, that's a good point. And uh, there's not really too much you can do to prevent that. I mean, if it's things like, uh, you know, logins or stuff like that, you can rotate those. But if it's, if it's just, you know, intellectual property, trade secrets, stuff like that. Banking secrets, healthcare information yep. for prominent public figures, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's not like you can rotate that. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Biometrics too. Biometric data, that's that's also a big yeah. one. Wow. Okay. Um well, I was feeling better, not anymore now, but that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mix of feelings, right? It's it's positive and negative yeah. as all things in life. Two sides of the coin. Yep, all things in life. All things in life. Um I know we I know we put it on here in my in my notes here to kind of mention, but any pieces where this can help hurt or uh where machine learning is involved? I think machine learning is going to help uh, prototype uh, more rapidly the quantum computers. Uh, machine okay. learning, you know, will not assist in breaking cryptography uh, as far as classical cryptography and the math. Machine learning may eventually come up with better quantum algorithms that break stuff even faster than Shor's algorithm. But we're not there yet. Okay. All right. More doom and gloom. Great. <laughs> it's fine if we protect no, ourselves with these with these uh, post quantum yeah. algorithms. Then it's a different type of mathematics that you know d currently with Shor's algorithm can be broken. Who is to say, though, that in the future we won't find other quantum algorithms that break you know maybe uh, symmetric encryption? Right, the future is not mm. set. And 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 that's just it, right? We're, the everything we've been talking about today has specifically been on asymmetric encryption, um, but with, with the idea that hey, hashing that's still safe. We're 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 still good with hashing. We're still good with symmetric encryption. The the quantum computing as it stands today and as we understand it today, no risk. But you just don't know. You, you just, just don't, don't know. know. Um, but I think this at least kind of shows that. I, I have to say I'm I'm very impressed and I, I am a little skeptical about the, the parties involved, especially in on this in in this uh this side of the pond, right? Um 
but I'm very impressed with the attention to detail, the level of kind of like, hey, we need we need to do this, and you know what, for for doing it in, or at least seeming it to do it <laughs> do it in a way that's very open and transparent. Um, I, I I definitely applaud that, and uh, I think the industry will just have to kind of pick up where you know other places leave off and you know i think we'll be i think we'll be in good shape yeah i have i'm pretty pretty confident at the end of the day we'll be in good shape and i think there will always be more work to do in cybersecurity as we go forward never ends yep so i don't need to print off every bit of information i have and hide (laughs) it under my mattress uh probably not probably not cool but just keep it back up just in case yeah definitely keep backups <laughs> not just because of encryption but because of ransomware and malware and all sorts of yes other ways yes, to yes. get your data compromised oh good times well igor this has been incredible i've really enjoyed the conversation with you um you definitely know your stuff i mean you were you were throwing out version numbers and beta numbers and dates i was very very impressed um, I want to, before we wrap this up, I just want to uh, open up the floor to you. If there's any other final thoughts or, uh, last minute things you'd wanted to mention before we close this one out. Yeah. Read those privacy policies. That's probably the, the, the <laughs> thing that, the thing that I, that I end every podcast with these days is people read the privacy policies that, that is privacy is becoming, um, kind of inseparable from security, right? Security is how you protect the data. Privacy is. Uh, what what you allow people to do with your data, even if they are protecting it. And I think yep. we're getting better at security, but I think privacy has really been kind of sliding. And we need the consumer of applications, services, to really start being more more vigilant about their data privacy. The legislators are working there, but without participation from the consumer, like no amount of regulation is going to protect you. If you just sign your rights to your data away, then you're not protected under legislation even. Yep. Yep. Especially, especially in the means of convenience, right? We, we definitely sign a lot away without realizing it. And, uh, you've got to be very mindful of those privacy policies with any organization you're going to work with both in a professional and a business, uh, in a business kind of way. Absolutely. So. Awesome. Igor, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for listening to ConfT with your SE. If you have any questions, I'm sure there's lots of questions, feel free to drop us a line at hello at ConfT.show. Uh, also join the Discord. Uh, Igor, I don't know if you're on Discord, if that's something you'd be interested in joining, but uh, I'll be sure to get you on there if, uh, if, you, if you'd like to be. Sure, send me an uh, invite. Maybe we, yeah, we'll, we'll get Igor on there as well if you, uh, you can kind of pick his brain. Um, also this is, this is news. If you made it this far, awesome for you. The ConfT merch shop is actually open now. Shop.ConfT.show to get your coffee mugs, t-shirts. Uh, I think there's a, actually it's right over here to my, to my left here, a little beer can uh, shaped glass there, uh, to, you know, show off your, your love for the show. But, um, all that being said, be sure to stay safe out there. See you next time. And don't forget to save that config. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of ConfT with your SE. For more information and resources on today's topic and others, check out the show notes on our website at conft.show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics, drop us a line at hello at conft.show. And remember, if you found this episode informative and entertaining, please help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform and sharing it with your colleagues and friends. 
And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, this has been Conf T with your SE.